You're listening to Lady Radio, the hottest show this side of Dizzo. and welcome to episode 6 of Lave Radio, the show that covers the universe of Elite and the development of the computer game Elite 4, Elite Dangerous. I'm your host, second technician, Fozzer Forrester, and joining me in the orange beacon of broadcasting that is the Lave Radio Sidewinder, we have Lave Radio's chief fluffer, Alan Stroud. Cheers, Foz. The man of a thousand mics, Chris Jarvis. Hi. And finally, the answer to the question, what would happen if Commander Scott and Lieutenant Uhura had a love child, John St. Abel. Hello, thank you. Sorry, I was just trying to process the fact that I don't get any tan. So obviously I didn't get any Uhura genes whatsoever. <laughs> sorry, I, sorry. Uh, I can't breathe at the moment. That, um, that was really good. Well, as a fluffer, you probably have that problem a lot. Welcome, <laughs> <laughs> everybody, and, and happy chocolate egg holiday to you all. Uh, what we're going to do this week is going to be slightly different because this is episode six. It's uh, one month down and we've actually released 10 shows, a uh, grand total of eight hours and 15 minutes worth of podcasting. So I'm going to ask you what you've been up to this week. And I'm also going to ask you what your favorite bit of the shows have been so far. So we'll start off with you, Alan. What have I been up to? Well, the Kickstarter finished. That was oh, that whole month has just been mind blowing. I'm actually working really really hard trying to to finish off some of the pledge rewards because i have a few that gifts immediately to my backers so i'm hoping that uh, i can get those out in the next couple of days working on um on a, another book at the moment i need to finish a fantasy novel now very quickly so that i can get on with writing uh, writing the elite novel that uh, that i've got to do so um so yeah so i've been working on that tone a bit of uh, of sort of sound effects work and other bits and pieces and just literally two hours ago recorded the writing interview with Drew, where Drew has interviewed me in terms of uh, talking about Elite Labour Revolution. Excellent. Okay, so Alan, what about anything that's come out of Frontier Developments or anything that you've seen on the forums? What's been there? What information have you uh, been really excited about so far this month? The Asbo Sidewinder. Ah, I see you could have stolen my thunder there. Yeah, the Asbo Sidewinder. Seeing the Orange Sidewinder is very cool. This from the man who actually disputed the fact that it would be an interesting concept in the game and it would be boring. But it's a funny, funny piece of artwork. <laughs> it's a funny piece of artwork. I don't have to necessarily revise my opinion that doing that in the game would, would be a bit boring, but um, no, it was a fantastic piece of artwork in response to what we were doing. Oh, and um, uh, Darth Maul Cobra-tastic. You know, I mean, that, you know, <laughs> seeing some of your work published, Foz, that was, that was great. The genius that is my mash at writing. I think we're going to move swiftly on and go to Chris. Chris, what have you been up to, mate, and what's been your favourite bit of the month so far? Uh, well, uh, we've been, me and my wife have been travelling around, visiting some friends and family, just distributing the news that Hannah is actually pregnant and we're having a baby. Oh, so, congratulations. Wow. Yeah. So Thank I dropped to... that on you guys there. Wow. You, you see, you see, I already knew, but, you know, I kind of <laughs> I wanted to keep quiet and, and not steal his thunder. Absolutely. <laughs> congratulations. But I think this is a deeply cynical move to avoid the bedroom tax. <laughs> it is, it's been, we've been rumbled okay mate and i mean i dare say in which case you you probably haven't been excited about any other news coming out this month but uh no, well, I, I, 
of the stuff we've done so far, I think the, the, the thing that's excited me most is this thing about the other paths to elite. And I think that is just, you know, that's been the thing that's come out that I thought this game's going to be great. You're going to be able to play it the way you want to play it and still still do well. And I think, you know, that's that, that's kind of made the game for me. <laughs> As opposed to the original one where you basically just had to kill, murder basically a lot of your fellow pilots before you became elite. Yeah, essentially. Okay, perfect. And John, what about you, sir? Well, um, as far as what I've been up to, um, as as people probably know by now, I've been quite sick myself, but I've been better. And my wife was also ill, but she's been better. So over Easter, we man- we managed to get out and see some family and things. So so that was nice. But apart from that, not a lot. But as far as stuff coming out of Frontier, stuff coming out of the forums, there's, there's been so many great moments. I mean, the first thing I wanted to, to say that I was impressed with, what's become apparent is the amount of effort that's been going into the backstory and the fiction associated with um, the new game. I think it's going to make it that much more immersive than the previous games that I am, I am abs- I'm positively excited over playing the game, not simply because I just want to fly my ship. At first, that's what I was looking forward to, but now I'm looking forward to finding out so much more about the Elite Universe. So that's, that's the great thing that's come out of the process, as far as I'm concerned. But coming out of the forums, and it might sound a bit um, self-centered, um, I've liked the feedback about the podcast from people. Because, you know, it's kind of hard to, you know, sit here and, and put a podcast together. We think certain things are funny. We think certain features are great. But it's nice when people turn around. And to be fair, you know, when you release the first podcast, if everyone's nice about it, that's to be expected. But, you know, as you said, now we're into our sixth podcast. And every month I'm surprised that people are still listening. <laughs> um, and One of the comments um, that I heard was that... Um, Oh, it's it's nice to hear some mature people talk about it. So, um, yeah, that was great. So, yeah, that's what I take away from it so far. Excellent. Well, uh, for me, I spent uh, Christmas Christmas. I spent Easter <laughs> up in the uh, the Highlands with the family the, in Perthshire. We took James, who's twenty months old and starting to run around now, to uh, one of the activity hotels up there in Creef, and uh, we just had an absolutely amazing family holiday. The the weather was uh mixed to say the least we had uh, one game of tennis had hailstones bright sunshine snow and uh, blistering blistering heat so yeah I, I was dressed in in shorts and t-shirt and for some of the game looked like an absolute raving lunatic and for other parts of the game looked like i was actually appropriately attired so that was quite good fun and then in terms of the stuff that i've been really uh, excited about coming out of frontier developments uh, the look and the aesthetics of the empire ships been really quite excited about i really love the way that they're looking i think they've got a a very cool aesthetic about them love the information we got last week in terms of being able to dock with capital ships and from the most recent writers interview i think the supermassive story with commander jameson sounds really exciting as well but yeah what you're saying about the feedback uh that's always great it surprised me uh this last month how much effort actually goes into uh (laughs) putting something out that actually sounds yeah half decent and I have to say on record that most of that goes down to the work that you do in the editing suite because if people think that we sound mature, they should really listen to the two hours of stuff that doesn't get, doesn't make it into the podcast. Are you thinking of suing over missile Python protection insurance? Had an accident in an airlock or slipped in a space station cargo bay and thinking of suing for compensation? Well, don't. 
tried to take my ship commander to court for making fertiliser out of my crewmates. Legal fees have left me with nothing, and now I'm hungry. All the time. At Watton Prittany, we take small print very seriously. We have a massive team of lawyers just waiting to block your case and ramp up your legal costs. I wanted a simple, no-win, no-fee arrangement. My case got blown out of the water by Watt and Brittany, and now I have to rent out my arse for hydrogen fuel. At Watt and Brittany, we have a saying, if you don't want a beating, stay out of our court. I was savaged by a wild creature whilst fixing a vending machine. Can't I claim compensation? No, you can't. Because we have a massive team of lawyers and you're just someone who works for a living. What and Brittany? Don't even think about it. Okay, so moving on though. Obviously, we've had the Easter holiday and we've had some communications from Frontier that uh, certain things because of the holiday have moved into the back burner. So in terms of development news, we haven't actually got that much to report on. So in the DDF section, the Design Decision Forum group, we've actually got information on how it's going to work in terms of uh, the multiplayer aspect, the single player aspect, and how you're going to meet fellow pilots in the universe of Elite. So the topic's basically groups and how you're all going to be grouped together. John, you basically did some digging into this. What can you tell us about it, mate? Well, perhaps this can clear something up, because I've been, well, not just me, I think, I think there's a certain amount of confusion in the language that people are using to talk about Elite as a multiplayer experience. Because there are some people that are throwing out the kind of MMO expression. I think they've been quite clear that it's not one of those. And at the same time, there is multiplayer. So I'm personally a little bit like, I think I need a broad understanding here of whether this player grouping, whether this is about putting you together on a server. I don't understand entirely the overall principle of what it's talking about. From what I've read, and we'll go into it now, I think the general idea is that they kind of want to have the best of both worlds. They don't want to worry about having a server infrastructure which has to support the MMO, because that could mean multiple servers, you know, players have to be spread amongst different servers. You, there'd be certain people you'd never be able to meet, for instance, people, you know, in America, say. Um, I mean, that that still might be an issue, so I won't dwell on that. Basically, they, they're saying that they want it to work peer-to-peer, um, they, Frontier aren't interested in charging a monthly fee to keep servers. They, they, you know, they've gone down this road of implementing a technology so that you can have the multiplayer experience without having to worry about an MMO. And so they've gone to this middle ground where um, you can meet a lot of people and the world is persistent, just like an MMO. But at the same time, you, you've got more control over who you can meet in-game. It's not just you have to meet everybody. So they manage the persistency, do they? This, this idea that all your actions, even in single player, get reported to a sort of server of interactions. They still manage that part, do they? Yes, they do. Yeah. Because I think that was the falling down of a game like Freelancer as a, um, a kind of multiplayer experience. Was you know Some of the servers, the players did happen to keep them up and they were sort of persistent. But an awful lot of the time you would play you know, online with Freelancer and actually you'd be kind of back to square one uh, in terms of the universe and your progression within it. Yeah, well, I can I can chime in a little bit on this in that, um, yeah, there is a, uh, a strong desire to have the, the metadata effectively continue to evolve. So, you know, things will, game actions will affect the way in which the, uh, the universe sort of rolls out. And depending on, you know, you, you get to effectively, I, I assume, and I mean, John will go into more detail on this, you get to control the interactions that you have, but at the same time, 
when you you trade at a particular station and if you you sell food there and there's a food shortage then it should affect trade prices similarly if you you know if you you sort of you don't trade food there or you you destroy a a food trade ship that's that's going to that station and and there is a famine on the planet it will affect trade prices you know and so on whether you're actually interacting with with everybody or not interacting with people the metadata taken from your individual game will affect the ongoing sort of campaign got you so i'm assuming therefore that unlike say something with eve online where they've got one server where there's an hour's worth of downtime or half an hour's worth of downtime while everything sort of collates and updates that won't be the case it will be a persistent sort of backwards and forwards between the metadata server and the game that you're playing at any one time uh, your guess is as good as mine in that regard. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm just equating, you know, kind of the uh, the suggested idea that comes from uh, from what we have in terms of the material that, you know, you've got from the DDF and the other discussions that have been had. We digress. Tell us about the uh, the various different player groups within the the proposal. Okay, so I'm going to try and make this as interesting as possible because I can understand. <sighs> yeah. I can understand that some people probably think this is boring, but if you think about it as as a game that is going to be multiplayer and what David Braben's hoping going to be a, a, a social game, you know these are going to have you know a major impact in how the game actually works um, because I think that in the majority most people are going to play the game online with other people. So starting out, um, the first group is what they call the all players group, which is kind of special has a function as a way to punish people who've committed crimes because they get put into this group. Uh, but basically, all players group means that you have a chance of bumping into any player who is also connected to the server. But within this, and this is quite important, you have a friend list and an ignore list. So obviously, uh, if you have a buddy who you know in real life or who you've met several times and you like playing with him, you can put him on your friend list. It'll tell you if he's online. Uh, and then obviously the ignore list is for those nasty people that you don't ever want to hear from again because they said something about your mum and you won't get any communications from them and you won't see them obviously if you're in a busy instance because they get prioritized less this is one of the major reveals um, because it's all about priorities judging from what came out of the first ddf document about how um, all these different groups are going to work um, the question i had for is well if I ignore somebody or if I take somebody off my list because I, you know, let, let's just say they're a griefer or I, I don't like them. What happens if they're on a friends list? What happens if I'm in a group with my friend and we're, you know, mining an asteroid and then this person who's on my ignore list comes along? Well, what, is my friend going to see them but I'm not? What if this person attacks my friend, engages my friend in combat? Am I going to see my friend shooting at nothing in space? No, it, it sounds ridiculous. But these, this new information kind of gives us more of an indicator of what will happen, which is that people on the ignore list, although we won't hear from them via communications because we we've put them on ignore, um, they can't instant messages or anything like that. Obviously, if they do come along um, and try to join a busy group, they're going to be at a lower priority. Um, but I'll come back to that kind of at the end. So all players is all players. And also, it was interesting to see that you can say that um, you want to indicate that you want to play with friends of friends as well. Anyone who's joined Facebook will understand what friends of friends means. It means you can put a preference on, you know, if you trust your friends and you trust their judgment on other people, it can help you perhaps group with 
people that you would get on with a bit more. Now, the private groups is something that you set up with other people in game. Um, so you, you create your private group and you invite people to it. So this is quite similar to groupings in MMOs where you start a group and you send invites uh, before you go and do something. So I take it these are going to be groups of people who are perhaps going to go and take on a mining expedition or maybe an exploration mission, or perhaps they're going to go and perform um, some kind of group mission together. Um, what about David Braben's secret posse? Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. The onesie crew or something like that. <laughs> so that's interesting. So that's a way for people to get together in a kind of perhaps temporary way to achieve some kind of a goal, which is obviously very handy. And it's what's going to drive the social aspect of the game. It's going to be a way for people to meet strangers and work together with strangers. You can save the settings. But also what you can do is you can you can say to your friends, because they're your friends, they can kind of quick join your private group. So um, you don't need to re-invite them to your new group that you've just started. Because they're your friends, they can just hit a button and join you. And that's quite similar to things that any, any, any people that have been on Xbox Live or something like that will have experienced. If you've got the same game as your friends and you notice they're in a game already, you're able to basically jump in on the same session as them. I think it's really interesting because what it the sort of comparison to a social network system means that essentially you're creating almost like I don't know group hierarchies or, or individual hierarchies because you know if somebody is uh, sort of more available as it were in terms of you know their sort of interactions with people in terms of what they know about the game or what um, you know what they found out about particular missions or anything else or just you know general knowledge if you know, for example, John, you know, if you're running the Elite Wiki and, uh, you know, you've basically got a load of information about stuff and someone wants to ask you a couple of questions, if you're available in the all group, then actually it means that, um, you know, you're going to get a lot of people coming to, to come and have a chat with you, which I think is quite cool. Mm, definitely. And uh, but then again, if I don't want them to talk to me, I can always just drop into a private group um, if I'm having a bad day. Um, but then that brings us on to the solo group, which is basically single player. Uh, you're still attached to the metaverse, so you get to see all the changes that are going on. But as far as other people are concerned, you are offline. You know, they can't actually see you in-game. And as far as they're concerned, they can't see you as being logged on to the system. Um, they can still send you messages, and I suppose, and as they say, you can reply to those messages. Um, so they will, you know, in a way, find out you're online. And it's just a way for people who, you know, they're fed up of maybe you know, human interaction and they just want to get on with some mining or something, gives them a, an opportunity to do that. Um, they still have to obviously put up with pirates in the game. In the solo group, so I'm assuming it's not a way of getting rid of the all players group as a punishment. So even though you're in the solo group, I'm assuming if you, you know, build up a big enough fine base or you've got a bounty, you will still get bumped straight back into the all player group. So it's not truly single player is it obviously this is all tentative this can all change i mean this is just what's been proposed at the moment in the ddf there's going to be conversations about this some of this might change my understanding of the current thoughts on it is the only way you can suddenly get into the um the all player group is if you attack a player now obviously if we're in the solo group you're not going to see other players so if you don't you so you're not going to be able to attack them and therefore end up in the all player group yeah, that makes sense. Um, I was wondering, though, I mean, you know, if uh, they have a solo, they'll obviously have a few sort of sets of some of these grouping ideas. I wonder if there'll be a, 
a sort of a private group or a solo group for anyone in the Orange Sidewinder? <laughs> well, there's nothing stopping us from setting it up. So what's to stop you? So if you're in PvP with another player and they're really kicking your ass, what's to stop you before they kill you just adding them to your block list? Yeah, there's, well, they haven't explicitly said it about being in combat, but I would assume, just like many other um, uh, MMOs, um, if you're in a certain status, um, there's there's a cooling off period, or if you're in combat, you can't do something until you get out of combat, which is either you win, you die, or you run away. Um, well, there's, there's straight away, there's an easy mechanism, isn't there? You know, if you were only able to change your your lists when you were docked at a space station, then that makes it nice and easy. Yeah. True enough. Because, I mean, if you were thinking about a cooldown period, it would kind of, it would help you get rid of, say, a pirate that was chasing you through hyperspace. If you managed to escape to a different system and they were trying to chase you down, you could probably run out your cooldown uh, cool down to a period uh, before they got to you. So, yeah, what Alan says about being docked probably makes more sense. It's something that a lot of multiplayer games need to work out because I've known lots of competitive online games being broken just by that certain type of player who would rather pull their internet connection than have another defeat logged against their username. There's something that used to happen all the times in, you know, the silliest of things. Um, the game Worms, if you play that online, <laughs> you know, if you put, there are certain players you come across who will always just drop their connection before you deliver the kind of killing move just because if their connection drops, it doesn't count as a loss. And that's something that I think, you know, Frontier Developments will need to be very aware of in their kind of anticipating player psyche. There will be certain players who, rather than accept defeat, will probably just disable their internet and see what that does rather than losing their stuff. I mean, I would go so far as to suggest what you should really happen is if you lose his connection with an actual player, you should just let AI take over the craft that's attacking you and finish the job. Uh, that's that's just my view on the matter. Well, you know, you you've got two things going on there. You, you mean you've got people who are obviously just you know alt F fouring to quit, and then you've got people who are genuinely losing their internet connection. And I think the general consensus is so far on a lot of the MMOs has been that if someone loses their connection, then their character just ends up stood there like a lemon. Um, for 30 seconds before they disappear so in a way i mean if they were about to die they're going to die and that gets remembered and they will get you know they will get penalized for that um but obviously if you get disconnected you're in the middle of nowhere you're probably not gonna you know you're not gonna get penalized so should we continue with alliances although frontier have already said that there's not going to be guilds or groups um an alliance kind of works in a kind of idealistic way, in so much that if there's people that you share a common goal or ethos with, you can join an alliance with them. Um, and this is kind of cemented by the fact that players can only be in one alliance at any given time. And this seems to be more of a kind of a long-term thing, but it, it's basically like a circle of trust. <laughs> <laughs> but the... The important thing about this is it confers certain privileges on players who share in the alliance um, because obviously you trust each other. For instance, if you jettison cargo or maybe you've been destroyed, then other people in the alliance can pick up that cargo and they won't be considered to be you know, thieves or criminals or pirates or whatever. Also, 
if you accidentally shoot somebody when you're in an alliance with them, it won't be counted as a criminal act. But it does bind you in some ways that obviously if you're in an alliance with somebody and you're on the scene and there's a crime committed, you're, you're guilty by association, which is quite interesting. That is interesting. It's very interesting. But also, and this is talking about the slaving of hyperdrives that's been mentioned several times before, that is enabled within the alliance. Also, it's another way of prioritizing people that you meet. Um, if you're in an alliance with people, you're more likely to meet them in the match- matching system that's built into the game. But also, there's a kind of this, this kind of democracy theme going on within the alliance. Players can vote to kick other members uh, if they're unpopular or whatever. But it's a proper democracy, obviously. If more people say, no, keep him, then they're going to stay. There's no leader to it, uh, unlike the private groups where... There'll be one person who starts the group. They will be the leader of it for for whatever temporary um, situation is. This is more of a kind of long-term people getting on with each other, so therefore it's more of a democracy. Well, you can also see there might be, and you know, I'm supposing here because I don't have any hard information as to whether this will be the case, but it it sort of sounds like if that is the the structure that players will start to connect to then it sounds like it could be something that you can attach factions to yeah. or you could attach corporations to. So essentially that, that level then becomes sort of augmented by, by sort of uh, whatever the NPC agenda of, uh, of the campaign element of the game is. Yeah. So as I said, although they've, they've said no, no guilds, no, nothing that integrated like that will be in the game in the initial release... And I can understand them doing that. They're still allowing this alliance because, you know, if this is going to be a social game, there are people that are going to want to play together long term. And there are going to be people that are going to, going to want to, um, you know, transfer of, you know, stock or, you know, cargo, things like that. So this is going to help with that. Just looking at some of the other things, if you read it in full, there's obviously lots of other little tidbits that might interest some people in there. So, um, you know, if you are on the DDF, obviously go check it out. It's definitely worth looking at. You might have thought it was boring, but it's not. <laughs> the one thing that I took away from it, and this is maybe something, some food for thought, was this idea of somebody being on, on an ignore list. As you said, in previous games, uh, sorry, not in previous Elite games, but in, in other games, um, if you get on the ignore list, then you know you just get ignored um, by those one that one person. Because this matching service is based on priorities, so obviously if somebody's in your alliance and they're your friend and none of your friends are ignoring them, there's a high chance that they're going to end up being matched in in the group, or sorry, being matched in the world with you, so you will actually be able to see them. If somebody's been ignored just by you, uh, but no one else is ignoring them, and obviously there's not a high population of people, they're still going to be there. But what this does mean, in effect, is that... If there's somebody who's been ignored by a lot of people, then their chances of being matched in a group are very, very low. This is, in a way, like a policing system, in that if you're ignored by a lot of people, you're going to find yourself more and more isolated, um, in that, that you won't, you'll be matched with fewer groups. So um, I, I think that's an interesting part of, of the matchmaking system. Do so you think that's a way of um, sort of controlling the griefers? I think it it will certainly be a way within the inner systems, um, you know, with core systems where there's going to be high populations and high high density of people. Um, there's always going to be a full shard around you. But as soon as people start getting ignored, 
they they're less likely to end up as members of these shards. Um, you, you could be ignored by so many people that the inner systems would seem positively, you know, desolate. Um, so yeah, certainly. I think as you get out the frontier, obviously because the shards aren't full, ignored players will still get paired up with with people. But then again, it's meant to be lawless, so fair game. So you're saying <laughs> that. Um... It's a way of keeping the pirates out of the inner system and pushing them towards the outer well, systems? Well, not pirates, but people who are unpopular, I guess. Like pirates? Like pirates, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> I love pirates, but... <laughs> Sorry, I'd just like to put it out there that um, I've looked over this a couple of times. Some other people might have seen some more interesting stuff in there. Let us know about it, because I think this is very important to a social game. Uh, and so, obviously, as this develops... You know, I think obviously we're going to get more insight into how interactions within the game are going to work. So uh, email us, tell us what you think. I think I think as well, it's worth pointing out that you know, just to emphasize the the fact of this this sort of cultural excu- exclusion system, I think it's very clever. Uh, to be perfectly honest, how how it works in terms of its implementation and how it you know how it comes out in the wash, as it were, when we when we start playing the game, it's going to be interesting to see. But you know, just the the basic idea of having uh, players who are more aggressive and are are perhaps more antagonistic, effectively pushed to the outer systems, kind of reflects the way in which you know the way in which the Wild West works, doesn't it? Really, it reflects the idea of of sort of um, uh, of people being on that frontier and of you know of it being lawless out there, which I think is really cool. I mean, did um, did any of you guys ever watch the TV series Space Above and Beyond? No. Yes. Remind oh. me. They actually, you know, just to just to give a reference to um, uh, to that some people who haven't watched it would know as well. They actually they uh, there was a very similar episode in uh, Battlestar Galactica in one of the later series of Battlestar Galactica. They had this one spacecraft from the alien race that was sort of scarred and was lurking around this particular asteroid field and the um uh the the pilots from this particular squadron went out there and there was this legend built up about this person that he would kill everybody and he had killed all these other pilots and everything else and eventually they send out one of their best pilots and their best pilot takes him down and it was a, an enthralling episode of uh, of television in in both the the space above and beyond episode and also in the battle star episode when they use starbuck and uh uh, you know, and it, it kind of sort of uh, went a, a slightly different way. But um, just the idea here is that actually what you do is you're creating a game for people who may want, you know, to play slightly more aggressively. You know, you're creating a place for them to play and a way for them to play because they probably won't find the core worlds very interesting. But if they go out to a, a frontier system and they just lurk in that frontier system, they can create a reputation for themselves, and that actually is a really, really cool way to, you know, to kind of deal with um, the different types of play that people want to, to to have in a game. And I kind of said this on the forums before, and you know, people didn't like it. But when it comes to an anarchy system, you know, what is the difference between a griefer and, and you know, an AI pirate purely on appearances and the way they behave? Probably very little. So I think that. This is going to create a natural gradient that the further away you get from the core systems, or sorry, the, the further away you get from civilization, you know, the more you need to be on your toes, really. Yeah, I think basically with that, 
the difference is that an AI pirate, after blowing your ship up, doesn't come and fly over you and then start teabagging your remains floating in space. <laughs> We're still, David Braben still hasn't confirmed whether teabagging is going to be in the game or not. Um, <laughs> hopefully, someone's going to put that question to him in the next feature request. <laughs> Oh well, dear, which actually beautifully setting. leads us on to the next topic of discussion, <laughs> which is the feature request update number seven. For those people that haven't been following us, the feature requests are posted on the forums uh, by the community manager, Ashley Barley. People send in requests for what they would like to see in the game, and basically Michael and Sandy, the lead developers, will actually give some thought to it and post a reply. So... Feature request update number seven. This is my ship. There are many like it, but this one is mine. Ashley writes, it goes without saying, but in a game set in space, your ship is pretty important. A lot of inquiries we've got related directly to how players interact with their ship and what capabilities will be available to them. He's broken it down into three sections, the control of the ship, modules and upgrades, and some extra bits as well. So the first question that people had right off the bat was, what were the control methods going to be like? Uh, Were they going to have a proper cockpit view? as in the Elite, and is it going to be sort of more the arcade sort of fly-by-wire control method? Sunny said, yep, they can confirm. It's definitely going to be a proper cockpit view, as in Elite. So what, what do you mean by a cockpit view? Does it mean what you actually get to see, you know, proper like, like a dashboard rather than just a head? There's some stuff in uh, um, sort of later that they've talked about as well about the fact that essentially the the look will be, there'll be a certain amount of, viewing out the front screen, maybe viewing out the side screen to maybe seeing a little of the accoutrements around the front screen and everything else. But you won't be able to move around inside your own ship um, at this stage. So is that bad news for Oculus Rift people who were hoping to be able to turn their head within the uh, within their cockpit? Well, it, it, doesn't say, it doesn't say completely that they won't have that kind of support, but, you know, it is a fairly small niche of people. Um, that are, are probably going to use the Oculus Rift at this stage. So, you know, I mean, that priority has to be after getting the game working, doesn't it? Yeah, and in fairness, reading the latest, um, if anybody still checks it out, the comments page and the Kickstarter, Michael actually answered the one about Oculus Rift, saying it was something that they were interested in exploring, but it wasn't currently on the development page at the moment. It's probably something that will come later down the line, so... Mm-hmm. Even with the Oculus Rift, it's not going to be something that's released with the initial release of the game. Well, I'd, I'd probably still buy an Oculus Rift anyway, because, you know, especially if it comes with a groinal attachment. <laughs> <laughs> You've been watching too many episodes of Red Dwarf. No such thing. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> How can you watch too much Red Dwarf? Okay, another question uh, came in. It said, a powerful memory from the original Elite, of course, is the difficulty in docking with a space station without a docking computer. Uh, Some people were interested to see if Elite Dangerous would give players a modern rendition of this experience. Uh, The answer is basically, although the team want to allow manual docking to take place, they don't want it to be nearly as difficult or as punishing as in the original game. Oh... (laughs) <laughs> which might be slightly upsetting to people. But yeah, Sandy says, manual docking is in the existing design. The level of damage on failure though is yet to be decided. And Michael says that you can manually dock your ship, uh, but we'll see about what damages it causes. We don't want the game to be frustrating, but ramming a station should have consequences. So yeah, I think all of our childhood memories of ending up as uh, yeah, a mere scratch of paint on the side of a Coriolis station isn't going to be the case with Elite Dangerous. Uh, I would assume they're probably going to do something where they take pity on you, and if you crash into the size too many times, they'll actually activate probably an automatic docking 
and charge you for it, something along those lines. But uh, So you can dock without a docking computer. It's not going to be as frustrating as it was in the original game, but it sounds like some people are going to be quite disappointed by that. Well, I don't necessarily think that, you know, if you hit it a couple of times, it's going to dock you automatically. I, I think what they're basically saying is it's going to be a bit more forgiving than the previous games. They've already talked about how if you're moving at low speeds, the shields are just going to bounce you off and there's not necessarily going to be a huge amount of hull damage. So I think it's just going to be more forgiving for players who are bad at parking. But I think this shows a bit of maturity from them, and maybe a bit of savvy when it comes to marketing the game. You know, they understand that um, we're not, you know, although it's probably a lot of hardcore players have backed the project, that they, they want to appeal to a wider audience, maybe some casual players, people that never played Space Sims before. So I think it's a smart move from them. I was always slightly confused by the docking computer anyway, because, you know, by the time you could afford it, <laughs> you'd kind of got good at the docking. I mean, if you didn't get good at the docking, you would never earn enough money to buy the docking computer in the first place. Is that strictly true? Because on the versions of Elite I played, there was still that period of sort of sphincter twitching where you'd sit in front of that spinning rectangle with a valuable cargo and thinking, yeah, am I going to crash this time? Am I going to crash this time? <laughs> oh, no, I've docked. Excellent. Uh, I couldn't wait to get a docking computer. I was never, ever confident uh, that I wouldn't just, you know, splatter on the side of the walls. It was immensely frustrating. I think I can count the number of times I docked manually on one hand in Frontier because I always used the docking system. But you start with the automatic pilot in Frontier. I mean, that was the thing. There was never, unless you were a real masochist, there was no reason to downgrade. No, I was the masochist. I tried it. That's why <laughs> I, I got a handful of times, you know, when I, I did manage it. Oh, the amount of times that I failed is, is more than that. But um, no, I was a masochist. Okay, well, speaking about docking computers, the next section is on modules and upgrades. The main question being, would there be a range of different quality modules from generic brands to high quality models? Uh, basically, the developers have said, yes, specific content to be decided, but there should be a, a progression for specific models. So they're saying this as if it was a new thing. But in my head, in Frontier and also Elite, when you're thinking about the military hyperdrives and stuff, I always saw those as, as an upgraded module anyway. So I think they've always been in the game. And they've yeah. already implied because of the level of scans that you can do when you're checking someone's police record. You know, we've talked about that in previous in previous yeah. episodes. They've already suggested that different levels of scanning or counter-scanning software would result in different results. So maybe this has just taken a while to appear. And they kind of confirm that in the next one when they say that, uh, you know, is there going to be upgradable software? Uh, and they say yes, because scanning and exploration will require something like this. Another question that was asked was regarding deployable structures. Now, those that have played Frontier will be aware of the deployable mining uh, machines, the, the MB4s. Um, the question is, will it be possible to deploy communication satellites, exploration probes, mining bots, and trade mules? And Frontier basically said that while they can confirm that there will be deployable structures, they've not yet finalized what the full range of these would be. Sandy says that there will be deployable structures, not sure about ComSat specifically, but there will be, there may be exploration probes of some sort in the game. Specific details are yet to be discussed. What do you guys think? What sort of things could we yeah, could we imagine being deployed from your ship in the game? Obviously, the mining rigs. What else? Well, I think they're just basically confirming mining rigs, and it's kind of hard to speculate beyond what's obvious, really. What about fuel boys? So, you know, if you could, you could basically you could deploy fuel containers. 
so you could effectively refuel and and you know sort of have a longer hyperdrive as it were you know sort of a chain link you know if you were talking about the group system that we had earlier um if you're an alliance group and you're a you're an explorer um you go out there and what you do is you you gradually lay these sort of fuel boys out there as you go so that a larger ship can follow you out and deploy something else you know or, or whatever you know i mean i think that's that's an interesting idea and we've talked about you know how doing this sort of this this business of players creating maps and charts uh it'd be kind of interesting before you you know if you were going to set off for the rim before you chose a direction maybe you could send off a sort of like a voyager probe or something that just flies out in a straight line and just sends you back basic maps of what it finds in the systems that it travels through maybe it doesn't find anything maybe you shoot it in the wrong direction and you don't get anything maybe you get lucky and find a you know a mineral rich system uh, who knows well there's also there's um there's previous material in the fiction where you had augustus uh, brentworth who was one of the the sort of ancient explorers who went out into the far distance found these planets and sent back these these messages that arrived back on earth to to tell about these planets that he'd found now if you had the opportunity to go off and explore on the frontier and you could fire back something that would you know send your maps to to some particular location so that someone else could then pick it up and take it back so it would get there quicker than you having to fly all the way back transfer your map data and so on and so forth then that would be quite interesting too and of course those kind of probes would be subject to theft as well which yeah. you know make them you know make them really interesting assets to kind of pick up yeah, absolutely. And probably another way of uh, explorers actually getting paid if they send them back to you know, the people that are actually sponsoring their exploration. But as you say, may or may not get back uh, in one piece. But also, if you think about the fact that you know, Frontier Development has always said that there's there's going to be interesting and pretty things to explore within the galaxy. So maybe if you see an anomaly, you have to deploy some sort of scanning probe that has to sit there for a certain amount of time in order to collect all the data. So maybe that would be something else that you could get uh, yeah, get deployed from your ship too. Or even just a remote bomb. I mean, we've talked a bit about this uh, hyperspace tailgating. Given the risks involved, wouldn't it be great to just chuck a nuke through? Instead of flying there yourself <laughs> to say, do you know what? Go get them, Floyd. Yeah, I'd be worried that, you know, the bomb, I'd, I'd go to chuck it through and then it would decide philosophically that, it, you know, it'd have an existential <laughs> crisis and it wouldn't want to go or something like that. <laughs> well, you know, you could always sever your connection, and you know, then you'd, you'd obviously you wouldn't lose your ship, would you? Talking about losing your ship, another feature that has been alluded to in the Kickstarter, but never explicitly confirmed, was that players could actually own multiple ships if they wished. And in this feature update, it has been confirmed that it will be possible in Elite Dangerous. Although, of course, you'll only be able to pilot one of your ships at any one time. Now, the, the question that we asked about this was, you know, what's going to happen to all those ships? I mean, are they going to be stored on just one space station and you have to fly back to that space station to go into that garage? Or do they bounce around with you everywhere you go? Well, I assumed now, you know, based on what they said, that they're going to kind of bounce around where you go. I think that's a bit of a shame, really. I'd like them to be stored in one specific location. But, um, you know, it's up to them how they implement it. It depends how, how much they want to penalise players for obviously dying. Not not dying, but sorry, having their ship destroyed. You know, are they going to send them back to the last station, which I which I think they've been quoted as saying, you go back to the last station, or are they going to send you back to wherever you've got a ship? Yeah, no, I think I mean you can kind of get away with it if um, you indicate that 
the ships are being delivered. But, you know, I, I don't want things to just appear, you know. I don't mind if stuff um, stuff travels. So, for example, if, you know, if players move stations and what have you and then a player loses a ship, then, you know, they, basically an anaconda materialises from hyperspace and then it docks with the space station and then your new ship is delivered, you know, that's been transported up from the, the previous space station that it was at. I think that would be fine. But I think you, you, you've got to have something where these things don't just appear. I, I don't like so that. So you'd like some kind of a cut scene, which yeah. maybe would slow them down a little bit or something, you know, but just to remind them. But I would have, you see, now I would have gone with, once they're in their escape pod, it would, it would give them an option. It would say, do you want to go back to, say, Lave, because that's where you were just now, previous, yeah. or do you want to go back to Sol, because that's where your other ship is? I think that could be another another way of addressing it. Yeah, absolutely. You could give somebody an option because then, you know, they can obviously they can go to the station that they're nearest to, but it will take a minute or two for the ship to, to be delivered. Or they can go all the way back to you know, where the ship was last, which, you know, I think is, is fine. So I like that idea. I think that's 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 good. The thing I was going to mention here, and just in relation to the multiple ships thing, in the X sequence of games, certainly in X2 and X3, you got to a stage where you could own multiple ships and you could actually remote those ships. So what would happen is you'd basically you'd set off your trader or your freighter to go and do your, your specific trade runs. And you could, when it docked at stations, you could then do the selling and buying of cargo and then send it off to somewhere else. The, um, the AI system for those ships was fairly limited. So what you'd usually do is you'd have a freighter and then gradually you'd you know, you'd, you'd sort of send two or three freighters around and, and sort of worry about it because they might get attacked. And then eventually you'd get a couple of escorts for them and then that would all be fine. But every time, as soon as one of them was attacked, you'd be somewhere else in the universe and you'd have to then sort of hyperspatial way there to try and save your freighters, which was actually quite a good sort of way of generating game content, as it were. Now, I know with Elite, obviously, they're not going for that system. But what will be interesting here is that connecting with the, the Alliance system and everything else, and also the idea of delivering ships, you might still have an opportunity there where um, you can, you know, things can happen. I think it would be a shame, obviously, if, you know, you got blown up somewhere, lost your ship, and then your new ship was being delivered and it got nicked. I think that's a bit <laughs> <much>. <laughs> but, but at the same time, you know, it would be interesting to, to make sure that, that everything kind of, that it all happened, you know what I mean, rather than it being, you know, contrived. Yeah. So you just want to see more of more, a bit more narrative about what happens and, and Yeah, I just want it to be real, you know. Okay. Um I you know, without mm. without the fact that I I don't want to step outside my front door and well, I'd love to step outside my front door and leap into my Cobra Mark 3 or other ship and uh, and blast off into, you know, into to to Lave Space Station or anything else. But at the end of the day, you know, they've got a I I, I like the idea of things having believable sequence and and cause and effect you know and 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 sort of happening in a process rather than i don't like the idea of of things just appearing okay well talking about uh, cause and effect this one i think might get john quite excited based on his previous comments in uh, podcast regarding servicing his ship uh, it's a question as to whether or not ships will degrade and be subject to mechanical breakdowns of course john's going to tell us that this wouldn't happen if you get your ship serviced regularly well uh, I think this is the point of it, though, is because this is specifically addressing people who are explorers and who obviously are going to be traveling quite far out. 
they're not going to be able to necessarily get their ship serviced, which is understandable. Now, apparently, the idea is that you can buy equipment which will slow the degradation of your ship, which is obviously good for explorers. But, and this is just me wishing upon a star, (laughs) but I thought it would be kind of good if there was, and this could be a role within itself, waiting for some hate, off the forums but perhaps that you could kit your ship out in such a way that you could sacrifice so much of your cargo space that it became like a repair ship oh no support ship i like the idea yeah a support ship or the the equipment the elite equivalent to the rac yeah well you 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 kind of cheapen it with that but in a (laughs) way yes yes but you can you can sacrifice it if you connect the idea to what we were talking about before in terms of, of explorers, you know, if you've got someone on the frontier who's pushing the boundary and trying to find out, you know, new new sort of places and stuff, if you've then got the ability in that explorer configuration to request assistance um, and then, you know, whoever then goes out to go and find them, make sure they have particular things on board that are going to enable the other ship to, you know, to come back. That gives you a real purpose behind ship to ship docking. It gives you a real purpose behind, um, you know, behind that sort of exploration and behind that idea of contributing and, and working with people, you know, because it shouldn't just be about one person, you know, sort of doing everything. It's also about, you know, the reliance on the support structure. And I think, again, to go back to the, the point on realism, you know, if you look at explorers in the real world, they've got teams, you know, they have support teams around them. And, you know, and I think that idea is, is really cool. I think that's, you know, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, and just to add to that, and this isn't me shaking my fist at the forums in any way, but I, I, I think that the, the elite community is quite unique in so much that a lot of people that have come and backed the project and that are now on the forums, they've obviously experienced the franchise through single player. Um, and they want to continue it as single player, um, which, is, which is fine. But obviously, we're talking about now, we're talking about some great features that could be put into the game, which would obviously reward teamwork. You know, it rewards social skill. But I, I fear that there may be some people who would, in a way, say that, you know, it's not fair that um, they can't achieve the same as other people who were in a team. Well, you know, you, some of these roles you can effectively, you can create NPC elements for if you wanted to as well. You know, you could you could sort of support that if, if someone elected they wanted to have a, a single player experience, that would be up to them. But just imagine a scenario, um, taking the stuff that we've we've already discussed on the podcast you decide to go and explore the frontier. You get out to, um, having spoken to a corporation, they ask you, yeah, they commission you to go and get some new nav data in a particular sector. So you go all the way out there and you use you know, a huge amount of your fuel getting out there. And you find this new sector and you, you deploy your scanning sort of uh, uh, tools and you find out this place is rich in particular uh, resources and also there's this amazing visual scene where a comet is passing across the sun or whatever you know something that is is absolutely looking you know, really beautiful and so you're there and you're watching and you think this is great and you're basically looking at your your hyperdrive fuel and you're thinking oh bugger i'm probably not going to have enough to get back how am i going to manage everything so what you do is you deploy your probe and your probe heads back to, to go and send a message to people to let them know that you're out on the frontier and you could do with some assistance. Now, a couple of people get that message. 
one of them is in your alliance group and you know and sort of kits up and decides okay i'm on my way i'll you know i'll send my my ship up and i'll i'll go and help john out and then uh he'll share with me some of the credits for the the nav data that he's managed to receive and everything else and that's really good and someone else gets it and they're a pirate so then you've got three players who are all playing the same game but have all discovered and got the same information but they're all playing for completely different reasons with completely different agendas and actually that first player who's done the exploration has created the game for the other two players and that's good planning that's good game design because if players create games for other players even if they're killing them even if they you know if they're supporting them they're killing them they're they're stealing their stuff they're giving them stuff they're trading with them if you have the ability for players to create game for other players you create a perpetual world that you know that that works on its own and you know and that 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 I think is is clever okay well that leads us on to the final question which this week is the idea that's come up a couple of times about whether or not you will actually need a crew like you did in Frontier for some of the larger ships to uh, to keep your ship running at its optimal level. The idea is that whilst not all ships are going to be large enough to warrant a crew, it's an idea that Frontier developments are keen to explore now. Neither Sandy nor Michael are actually saying for definite this is going to be the case. It's something that they're going to look at further down the line, but they are quite keen on it. Now, do you guys think that it was actually added anything? The fact that you had to wait around in your you know, in the space station for you know, days on end waiting to fill up the 12, 12 crew manifest that you had for the Panther Clipper? Well, it, it kind of made less sense then, but it makes more sense now in terms of, because it's a multiplayer game, you need to worry about things like economies and sinks and things like that. And I think that if you have a large ship and you're making a lot of money, it makes sense to, in a way, tax you for that. Um, and the way that that can be done is through having to pay the crew's wages. When I saw this question, I thought it was asking about, are you able to not just take on crew, but kind of maybe select crew or maybe mm. reward crew in various ways so that they perform better? That's what I read by perform optimally, but I don't know. I was going to say, I think it's an awesome idea. I think... Um here you've got another mini game effectively going on in terms of your, your hiring and firing of crew. And also, you know, let's have a, a cast our mind backs to those Kickstarter rewards that we had where we inputted names for an NPC database. Where do you think they're going to go? But I think there's a danger of getting into almost a completely different genre of game here. Because you say it's a mini game with managing your crew. But, at, you know, at best or at worst, however you look at it, it's almost like The Sims on board your ship. Yeah. You know, one of the things that didn't make sense in, in Frontier was there wasn't a lot of different things you could do that would kind of upset your crew members. And actually, it was almost a bit weird that you had these people on board and didn't really matter what you did. You know, I mean, I can imagine a situation where you would hire certain crew members who were just really kind of scared or, you know, cautious people. And if you go and do a lot of fighting next time you dock, there's going to be people that are sort of like, you know, you're not paying me enough to be on the ship that you're going to get me killed kind of thing. Um, well, I love, I love that idea. I think that idea is great. I, I, I think the Sims analogy. Yeah. Okay. We don't want your know, sort of uh, characters that go off and behave in weird ways and, <laughs> and walk down the, you know, don't walk down the aisle the way in which you want them to walk down the aisle. Um, yeah. And, and we, we kind of don't want the Sims, but if you look at something like UFO, 
UFO has a really interesting way in which it handles your, you know, your troop rosters and you and they start to develop quirks and behavioral types, which I think is really cool. If you looked at games like um, Falcon or um, or X-Wing, you know, you had your your NPC wingmen who accrued experience based on how many missions that they went on. And I think that's that's really cool. I think that's really interesting. I think that um, if there are there are sort of options around some of that, then um, you know that will that will be useful in itself. And also, once you've got NPCs on board ships, um, if those NPCs are dynamic assets, if there if there's ways in which they're not just effectively a you know sort of a passive thing, if they can accrue experience or anything else, you also could attach narrative to them. Now, it doesn't mean that you would, but you have an opportunity to do so which I think would be interesting as well. A bit of consequence for losing your ship as well. If you were accruing this experience for you know, your crew members and you knew that if the ship blew up, only one of you survived in the escape pod and that was you, and that you had to go back and recruit more crew, again, starting from a lower level, it might just sort of make you double think whether or not you're actually going to get into that scrap with the pirate or whether or not you're going to run away and try and save the crew. Yeah, no, as well as that, you know, if you take damage, if you're flying your anaconda and you've got a six-man team you take damage and you lose your gunner got to go get a new gunner you know you survived the thing but you know you lost some of the uh, the stuff that was there i think it's great i think it you know it, it gives the game a whole different aspect from that you know that straightforward launch out the space station with your cobra mark three you know i think it i think it's really interesting but in terms of real world sort of development what what factors of your ship do you think you could really open up to be impacted by crew experience? Well, I off the straightaway off the top of my head is if you're in a large ship and you've got multiple turrets, then you've got people who need to fire them while you're trying to either steer the ship or you're on another a gun. You know, as you get into the larger ships, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done, you know, aside from whatever it is that you're doing. Um, and just going back to the Sims analogy, yes, I, I definitely don't want to be you know, opening the door to the toilet and finding one of the crew members sat on there. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I don't want that. But as you said, you know, there's so many things. I mean, am I, I don't know whether it's a false memory, but back in, in frontier, I'm sure that if you didn't pay your crew enough, sometimes there'd be some kind of random chance that you dock somewhere and all of a sudden one of your crew would announce that they're leaving. Yeah. Oh, yeah, if you ran out of money to pay the crew, they would leave. Right, right, okay. That, that, that was it. Yeah. But, I mean, in terms of how, you know, the crew would add to your, you know, your experience, I mean, again, more, more obvious stuff. If you've got someone who's like – I see, vaguely remember there was a game where if you had someone with a high engineering skill, they would reduce the damage your ship would take. Yeah, yeah. I have this vague memory of that. And the other thing is, you know, we were talking about this thing of, you know, if you're exploring out to the frontier, surely if you have a big enough crew – and you have a crew member whose skill is maintaining ship systems. Yeah. You should theoretically, as long as you've got you know spare parts, you should be able to keep going indefinitely. I mean, that's how you do it in real life. Or at least you'd be able to go on a little bit longer than somebody who doesn't have a, you know, a really good engineer. Yeah, and I'm just sitting here thinking there was a game that did it reasonably well, which is Sid Meier's Pirates. As you sailed around the Caribbean, you would pick up people. You know, you'd pick up people who would be master gunners, so your guns would reload faster. Or you'd pick up people that were, you know, great cooks, so your food would last longer. And if you think about picking up an elite, uh, a really good engineer, someone who can manage your drives and maybe get you a few more uh, light years out of your hyperspace fuel, for example, 
just trading on crew members would be another aspect, wouldn't it? You that know, sounds very much like slavery to me, mate. Yeah, well, yeah, okay, all right. You know, <laughs> I, I thought I thought I was talking to Imperials here. I thought it wasn't. It's called contracting, okay, <laughs> not slavery. Oh, outsourcing, right? Okay, indentured fine. servitude. Yeah, indentured servitude. Are you struggling with paying fines? Do you lose sleep in hyperspace worrying about docking at the next space station? If the answer is yes, then you need to call Cowell and McGrath Fine Management Services. I got scanned while in Federation space and was caught carrying slaves. It was an unexpected expense that I couldn't afford on top of my fines for damage caused whilst docking. We can help you consolidate all your existing fines into a single large fine, payable in regular instalments at what is almost a competitive interest rate. I called Cowell and McGrath Fine Management Services and they helped me pay my existing fines before I got a bounty on my head. They really saved my life. At Cowell and McGrath, we've helped thousands of pilots whose fines had spiralled out of control. I dared not go near a police star system. got so desperate that I'd almost resign myself to a life of piracy. Luckily, I found Cowell and McGrath's services before I actually murdered anyone in cold blood. No fines too big, no criminal record too damning. We're here to help you, no questions asked. Find us in the Lave Business Directory. I'd got into debt as a result of a massive counter-lawsuit by Watt and Pritney. It happened because I'd taken advice on Python protection insurance from... Wait a minute! It was you! Carolyn McGrath. Minimum liability, zero accountability. Warning. Balances may go up as well as down. Missed payments may lead to repossession of your ship, seizure of cargo or the issuing of a death warrant. Okay, so on to the community section. This week we're going to be covering, obviously, the stuff that's going on in the Writers' Forum. But before we get into that, the Lave Radio favourite ships of all time poll. Now, this has been running for a couple of weeks. We've just closed it this week, and the results are in. Okay, so here we go with the Lave Radio favourite ship of all time poll. We count you down from ten. In at number ten, proving that policemen need love too, it's the Viper Mark II. Number nine, the elusive ship that we all wanted to own but never had the right to use it. The Wolf Mark II. Number 8, the large ship without the large weight bill, it's the Boa. Simplicity itself, an excellent fighter with okay trading, it's the Constrictor at number 7. If looks could kill, and in this case they can, the Imperial Traders at number 6. It's French for Spearhead, it's Ferdinand at number 5. The fearsome little brother of the Imperial Trader, the Imperial Couriers at number 4. Number three, the Behemoth trading ship with a crew bill just as large as the Panther Clipper. Number two, the fastest and coolest ship from its class, the Asp Explorer. And finally, proving it's not just the default, it's also the best, the iconic Cobra Mark III's at number one. Okay, guys, what do you think? We, we split the vote, did we, between the Imperial Courier and the Imperial Trader? That was careless. Because <laughs> it, it's basically what? the same ship with an extra engine. Oh, I disagree. I completely disagree with that. Yeah, I disagree. The Imperial Courier was much, much faster, had much smaller cargo capacity. It wasn't a trading ship, whereas the Imperial Trader wasn't quite as fast, um, but did have the extra cargo space. Completely different ships. Yeah. See, I'm I'm just delighted to see the Wolf in the uh, in the list. Um, much as the Wolf might not be. Um, considered to be authentically frontier developments, as it were, because it only featured in uh, a couple of the games, and it was it was licensed um, as a as a souped up asp. The thing was with it was that when it turned up, because it was so hard, and it was you know really really pumped full of 
of kit and, and armor and uh, and everything else um it was a real real task to take down and you know i i, I think it it earns its places as as being part of the legend really as a as a ship when you saw a wolf you were sitting there going i'm in for a fight which i think is great you see i'm quite surprised that the viper only came in at number 10 because uh, I would have said the Viper was one of the you know, iconic ships of Elite. Uh, and I used to have great fun flying around in a Viper. I think people were more used to shooting them rather than <laughs> flying them. It was yeah, a big I upgrade, think... though, if you ever bought one. I mean, it was it had a lot of power behind it. Surprising amount of storage for such a nippy craft. I mean, it really was... I vaguely remember we did over Frontier. It did feel like a huge step up yeah. uh, to a Viper. You, you suddenly felt like a real force to be reckoned with that and the transporter the transporter i liked i had a lot of fun with the transporter it the transporter just didn't look pretty from the outside uh, but it had a lot going on for me the number two the asp explorer um i i i thought it was a very interesting choice um and maybe it's because when i was playing frontier i kind of flew through the asp very quickly because <laughs> I was very, very concerned on just earning as much money as possible and moving on to the next bigger ship. So maybe I didn't appreciate it as much as some people did. So Yeah, yeah. No, I think the Asp was, was absolutely iconic. I mean, certainly in, in terms of Elite, playing Elite in the, the first place, the Asp was the hardest ship that, um, you know, that there was in the game at that particular point in time. However, that said, it did look like a pair of Y-fronts in space. Oh, I see. I disagree. I thought the Asp was iconic. I thought it had a great uh, great look oh, about it. Well, he said I it spent... was iconic. He just said it looked like iconic Y-Friends. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I thought I, the design I, I was love... great. No, I, I don't Don't get me wrong here. I'm not dissing the Asp's design. I think the look is, is really sleek and really awesome from its profile straight on. But when you looked at it from, a, you know, from sort of above, as it were, you know, you're going towards it and you're seeing the top. You just looked at it. it doesn't, isn't that a pair of Y-fronts? Um, <laughs> it did look really odd in the in the line drawing system. So you know, obviously, it got better when uh, when it was sort of filled in together for for the later games. And certainly, you know, the ASP is the uh, you know the, the the sort of basis of a lot of the the military design anyway. So I, I you know I like the ASP. I think the ASP is a really cool ship. But Are we old- surprised that there's such a clear uh, leader in the number of votes for the Cobra Mark III. It, it surprised me that there was so much love for what is essentially the default ship. I, I think I think the thing with the Cobra is, of course, it's nostalgia. You know, that's it, it's at this point in time. If you were taking a poll right now, which we did, um, people are basically just just sitting there and looking at it and going, "Okay, what do I want to do?" Well, I want to fly my Cobra, you know, because I haven't flown it for X amount of years in a really good, cool-looking, you know, uh, graphical, updated version of Elite. Unless, of course, they've you know sort of played one of the the open source versions, but they're looking at the you know Elite Dangerous and saying, yeah, yeah, I want a chance to fly that ship again in something that is you know this awesome. And of course, what will happen? You know, if we run the poll again after um, after the game's released, about four or five weeks in, people will be looking at other ships, which mm. I think will be interesting. I mean, for me, it was interesting that the Panther Clipper came so high on the list. I mean, it came in at number three. Do you think that's just because everybody strived for it and it was the it was the pinnacle of what you could achieve in terms of what you were playing in Frontier, that you worked so hard and you know, at long last you could afford the, the Panther Clipper with the military laser and everything else? Because um, I mean, it wasn't a pretty ship and it was a beast of a ship to fly. I think Foss is right. I think yeah, it's been said already uh, in the last couple of weeks, we are an aspiration nation. And I think... 
<laughs> that one is getting topical. Uh, no, but I think I think I think it's true. I think it did. You know, it's one of those ships. Like for me, it was always the Lion Transport. The Lion Transport was always the big, expensive-looking one that I, for some reason, never actually managed to get enough money together to buy. Hmm. And that was kind of, you know, for me, that was. I felt like maybe if I ever got that, that I'd sort of finished the game. I'd won. Isn't that the one that you had a top turret that you could shoot your own, sh- you could fire on your own ship? Could you? Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, you could do that in the Panther Clipper. Oh, as well. Oh, cool. Cool. <laughs> the one thing I was kind of, apart from obviously I'm disappointed that the Imperial ships didn't do better. Um, no love for the Eagle. No. The Mark II. No, no, nowhere, nowhere at all. You know, and the amount of people that keep on telling me they kept on watching the uh, the Frontier intro over and over. Um, <laughs> No love for the eagle. But do you not think, I mean, if we're talking about uh, nostalgia with the Cobra Mark III, do you not feel there's an element maybe where some people thought coming into Frontier that the, the, the recommended start point wasn't a Cobra Mark III? And it's a little bit like, I don't know if you remember when the second Metal Gear Solid came out. There was this huge fan backlash because everyone had been expecting to play as the main character from Metal Gear Solid again. And actually, even though you did in the intro you quickly got rid of this very kind of tough, you know, facial scarred Pliskin snake um, uh, inspiration character. And you were replaced by this whiny kid with a mop of blonde hair and everyone just hated him. No one gave him a chance. Do you think there's that happening with the, with the Eagle that in the sense that people wanted the Cobra Mark three and you started playing frontier and you're thinking, what is this? What is this weird W shaped thing? Well, you never stayed in the Eagle very long, did you? It was always how quickly can you, you know, earn enough money to get out of that ship and get into something more, yeah, more like what you remembered or something a little bit more useful. I did because I suck. Yeah. I spent a lot of time in the Eagle, Mark too. <laughs> cool. And it's interesting that um, the first Lance, okay, so it's an iconic shape, but uh, it goes to show how the demographic on, uh, on the pole has sort of swung towards the original game because obviously the third lands did not make an appearance in the later games at all yet it still managed to make it at number five in the poll again there's that mythology attached to the third lands because it was this incredible maneuverable ship in the original game and you know it was one of those one of those ships that you you looked at and you hoped in the subsequent games you'd have a chance to fly it and you never did so it's got that kind of mystique to it so you know Okay, so everybody reasonably happy with the polls? Well, no, but it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Foz. Foz, isn't that your beeper again? Oh, no, seriously? Oh, it is. Okay, no worries, guys. This is only going to take me a couple of seconds. I'll be right back. Hold on. Attention, attention. Second technician Chris Forrester to the docking bay. The vending machine has broken. I repeat. Second technician Forrester to the docking bay. The vending machine has broken.
attention. Attention. Medical officer to the docking bay. Medical officer to the docking bay. Okay. I'm back. Harper. Bloody. Harper. What are we on to next? Um, writers Forum. Alan, what's, what's happening on the Writers Forum, mate? Um, yeah. Uh, okay, Foz. Um, you sure you're all right? Fine. Good. Okay, then. Um, well, um, I'm sure you can sort your hair out later. Um, yeah, in the Writers Forum, um, we've we've had more drabbles. Um, so, you know, I think Michael's got a fair stock at the moment in relation to stuff for the um, for the newsletter. So it'll be interesting to see who's comes out next. We don't know. You know, most of the, the writers have now have, have submitted drabbles to uh, to the thread. So um be interesting to see which one Michael chooses. We've got a quite a protracted discussion on swearing <laughs> and colloquialisms, which I think we're going to cover a little bit ourselves in a, uh, a bit. So, you yeah, know, we'll kind of come through with that. Um, it's been a, a week of welcoming back Kate Russell because she's now finished with the promotional material on her new uh, her new book. Uh, so she's now sort of kicking back into to sorting her stuff with Elite, which is all good. Um, Kate Russell's doing a mostly harmless book, isn't she? Yeah, that's right. No, she's she's been working on another book called um, uh, uh, Working with the Cloud, which is a business book associated with her work. So she's been promoting that and she's been sort of sorting that out with her publisher and she's now come back in and and is now sort of knuckling down to her her Elite Dangerous novel, which uh, which is all very cool. And then I launched something this week where I've put a couple of propositions in at the moment about some original Elite games where we're looking at the ideas behind having some some board games or some you know card games or other things that that could be featuring in the fiction that characters could play and you know kind of seeing whether that's something that Frontier wants to incorporate into uh, into the wider game itself you know you mean like of- space poker type of thing or yeah, yeah, a little bit like that, but we're we're kind of looking at trying to. And Dave Hughes has been very good in in giving me some feedback on this, because um, it's very easy initially. And you know, some of my initial proposals are very similar to existing games, because I kind of took the the idea that you know a game might evolve and you might create a variation, you know. But he's quite right in in sort of suggesting, can we have something that is a bit more original, you know, and and can we think of things that are wholly different to you know the games that you would suggest that would be played so yeah i've put i've put a couple of proposals together hoping to see where they go michael's got them at the moment so we'll you know we'll see what happens so are you talking about sort of like the yeah you know, the the 3d chess type of thing that we saw in star trek uh in the uh, in the original series something like a new game created for the elite universe that gets put yeah. into fiction and then yeah, something that maybe we can actually play in the real world setting as well well, I'd hope so. Yeah, something iconic, you know, something, as you say, with Star Trek has its multiple layered chess game. Now, it isn't 3D chess. You know, it is a multiple layered chess game because you're playing on, on multiple boards. Where you've got in Harry Potter, you've got Quidditch. You know, it sort of features as a as a game that's there. In Battlestar, you even had, I think it was called um, Pyramid, wasn't it, or something? Anyway, they had, yeah. you know, they had a sports game and they also had a couple of card games you know, and they're, they're sort of iconic octagonal pieces of paper and what have you. So you've got that kind of style going on and that kind of cultural depth. And I've kind of looked at a couple of ideas to try and see if we could create a similar cultural depth of something that, you know, that would 
look very iconic and look very different to you know to what we might be used to normally that sounds fantastic actually and that's something that obviously the nice thing about the way the the writers forum works is that if something does get decided on there it's something that goes throughout the entire elite universe straight away within all the fiction so if there is a a new card game or something it could be referenced in lots of different novels yeah very much so and i think as well you're kind of hoping and and this is always the case you're kind of hoping that you're going to put something together that's really cool that people really like and they go yeah we'll write that in the game it would be nice to you know to sort of write something iconic like that and then have someone pick it up and go actually we can design that and we can make it part of when you're at a space station you can sit and play it final fantasy 8 and 9 i remember there was a each of those featured a very different card game that you could challenge npcs to play uh, and you would you know within the game you would play this card game and it was a good way of making sort of you know ready cash or sometimes winning items really interesting little sub game actually well it, it comes back to if you remember when david braben did one of the vidcasts and he was saying about how he didn't want there to be these sort of things for people to have to do whilst they were waiting for other things to happen and i i picked that up if you remember in one of the other podcasts i picked that up and said you know what i kind of think that this has been sort of slewed slightly in terms of the way in which the question's been handled and you know and and i'd quite like to see it work this way and i you know i don't want a game to be put into elite that you doodle around on whilst you're waiting for the washing to come in or whilst you're waiting for you know the ship to be repaired i'm not i'm not interested in replacing time as it were what i'm interested in is creating things that make everything seem more immersive and i think if you've got something that stylistically creates a really different look you know if you take star trek and that that you know that multi-board chess system people remember it you know they remember yeah. it all the time from seeing that just you know featured in the galley or what have you when when people walk by and they you know a lot of the fans went can i get the rules for that you know and, and they, you know they play it at conventions and what have you you know i like the idea of creating something that's robust and works and then we can, you know, we can create it as being, this is something you do in Elite. You know, this is, this is from Elite. This is where you got that from. And you and I know that in, like, even in live role-playing, if you have an in-character casino, there are players who will spend massive amounts of their role-playing weekend in yeah. the casino. Absolutely. If you incorporate it directly with, you know, with a credit feed or something else or, you know, okay, let's play a 100, 100 credit game you know, or whatever, if you, if you connect those things together, then, you know, it's a different type of play again, isn't it? You know, so at the end of the day, you know, you and I might want to play a game so that we can go out there and we can go and, you know, sort of soar around the universe in our amazing ships. But if someone else wants to play Elite simply to play that, then that's up to them, you know, and it's another type of play. And actually, if the person's playing the game rather than doing something else, they're still spending time in the elite universe, which is kind of what we want. You know, we want more and more players to spend time in the elite universe. So a way of making money, if you think about it, without even setting foot outside the space station. So if you can play at the, I think it was called Sabak in uh, in Battlestar Galactica. Anyway, if you can play at the Sabak tables and yeah, earn a fortune off fellow mm-hmm. players that way, yeah, maybe it's not even necessary to jump in your Cobra Mark III and set <laughs> off across the universe. Have you thought about kind of sports in the sense of, because um, obviously we all drive cars, but motorsports are still massively popular. 
is, is there is there a possibility for spacecraft related sports that would be something that would be part of the world but that maybe players can also take part in well, I don't know. Um, you know, I, as I say, I've all I've done is I've put some proposals into the fiction forum, which basically then allow, you know, the the primary focus of those proposals is for the writers to have something that they could have characters do. And of course, we can then expand that. And, you know, and perhaps some of the writers will come back with other suggestions. One of the guys, you know, when he saw the ideas that I had, when he, he looked at the Drabbles thread, he then went, OK, I'm going to write a Drabble that, that features the, you know, a card game. And yeah, which was quite nice. He did not see the rules, so obviously it didn't necessarily work the same way as my rules worked. But, but that was cool. You know, it, it, it sort of allowed you to create uh, another situation which the characters would feature in. Now, in terms of things that players can do in the game, you know, we're all hoping that some of these things are, are being incorporated. But it, I mean, it's up to the designers. It's up to Sandro, and uh, it'll be interesting to see. You know, what of the uh, the information in the writers forum that that sort of translates across in that way. I, I mean, originally, you know, a few months back on the the forum, I mentioned the idea of effectively chat rooms in space stations being specific. You know, if two people have a bit of an argument, they can sort it out on the simulator. So effectively, you can go and you know, sort of, there's an arcade simulator, as it were, to allow you to you know to sort of fly different ships. And I thought that was quite a cool idea and you could fly them head to head and, you know, maybe they could even be in the the old line drawing version or whatever else. But, you know, a throwaway idea. But, you know, anything really that turns, you know, this 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 game that we want to play into a multi-layered and multifaceted experience, I think is is good stuff. Okay, well, I mean, that actually is quite a nice segue into some of the listener questions. Salazan has asked us about sport and leisure in the elite universe, obviously leading on from the uh, the leisure activities that you're talking about there in terms of card games. He wants to know what other games are going to be present in the year 3300. You know, have chess, football, snooker, darts and so evolved. Do they still have fanatical following? What sort of sports and leisure thing would we anticipate seeing in that far into the future? Zero gravity has got to be a big influence. I mean, if you think about the big change that going into space represents, if you change your sporting environment to one where things can now float free in space, I mean, you can definitely imagine something like, you know, even like bowls <laughs> being given a whole new lease of life by the fact that you're no longer rolling along a defined plane. You've got these spheres kind of floating in the air and you have to kind of very carefully direct projectiles towards them. There was in, um, I don't know if people played... I can't remember if it was Dead Space 1 or 2, but on one of the levels, you kind of went onto a leisure deck and there was this room that had a kind of zero-gravity version of basketball. And the idea is you would throw the ball at different panels first, and once you'd illuminated a certain number of multipliers, you would then aim for the kind of the hoop. But, I mean, that was all in zero-gravity, and that was something that a lot of the fans said, wouldn't it be fun to play this in multiplayer? So, I mean, you've also got not just zero gravity, but also, you know, sort of more intense gravity on different planets will also affect different games. Football might work in a very different way if the ball weighs an awful lot more. Or if, you know, if the gravity conditions are very different, then the ball is going to behave in a different way, isn't it? So, I don't know. I mean, it'd be interesting to to think about what things translate across the different conditions of different planets. If you think specifically, you know, games that don't require uh, physical conditions that are similar to Earth are obviously going to translate easier 
whereas games that do require conditions that are are, are similar to Earth are, are not necessarily going to translate. But those societies, well, they've had more than a thousand years to come up with. Yeah, some of them have had more than a thousand years to come up with their own games. What are they going to come up with? Well, they're going to come up with all sorts of different things. I mean, you've already got some ideas as well in the um, the Gazetteer and what have you about the Wiccan race with the Jagged Banner and their uh, you know their um, you know, their release of their music. So you've got the space race. You've also got um, there are other tours that are mentioned. There are some endurance tours that are mentioned and some safari stuff that's also mentioned in some of the Gazetteer information. So some of that stuff's also you know interesting color. And you may see, you know, two or three other things come up. And it'd be nice to see a few small ideas come together. It'd be nice to see, you know, some some bigger ones come together too. Well, in terms of, I mean, are we talking about a sort of, we're definitely not talking about a utopian kind of society like you've got in Star Trek. So I'm assuming we're still going to have some sort of gladiatorial competition. So you're wrestling, you're boxing. I'm thinking more things like, obviously, the great game on the Amiga Speedball 2. Which was sort of oh, ultra violent, yeah. uh, ultra violent sort of uh, American football, obviously all with armor and sliding around and you know trying to cause as much damage to your opponents as possible, whilst also still trying to score a goal. I think we'll leave that listener question for uh, the time being and move on to another one. Again, this is one coming from the the writers forum and the the idea of swearing within the elite fiction. And within this, you know, what is the target demographic for the game and also for its surrounding literature? Um, should the literature be turned down, toned down for a younger reader stroke player? Now, obviously, Alan, you've got some thoughts on this being in the writers group. But uh, John, Chris, what are your thoughts on it? I think it's always a difficult area. I mean, I suppose it depends on your on your sensibility, because if you look at something like Battlestar Galactica, which we've obviously talked about quite a lot, they kind of invented their own swear words. So, you know, in Battlestar Galactica, when someone says, oh, frack, you kind of know what they're talking about. And it's an interesting kind of ideology over, is that any less offensive because the actual word they're using is different to a word that we would understand as being profanity? They are still essentially swearing. They've just created a word that we don't recognize as being taboo. And this kind of, you know, language is, language is something that always fascinates me. And I think that, you know, it's very odd, the stuff that some people find offensive. I remember having a discussion with somebody because I said, um, I said crap. And they were absolutely mortified that I said crap. And I was kind of thinking, that's just like, a, I don't, that, it didn't even occur to me that anyone would find that word offensive or consider that it's swearing. But this person was genuinely mortified that I'd said it out loud in public. And were I, they from an older generation? No, they were pretty young. Um, they were, I don't know, I mean, I can't think of any, genuinely any good reason for it. Um, but it's just, you know, it's, it's one of those odd things. I mean, at the same time, I would, you know, I would, I would say that for something like Elite, I think there are certain types of fiction where I think using profanity is necessary to the fiction, uh, I think it's necessary for certain kinds of characters, but actually, I would, I would kind of say that maybe in something like, in an area like science fiction, you don't really need to use contemporary profanity. I think you'd have to be writing a very specific kind of fiction. You know, you'd have to be evoking um, certain types of things that we socially understand now and trying to relate that to make it something that's necessary to include. So, for instance, example, Alien Three. Alien 3 is a good example. 
uh, because essentially it's a film that's about prison culture. So if you're making a science fiction film that is that is analogous to prison culture, you kind of want it to sound authentic. Um, but if you take something like a movie like, I don't know, let's go to the other end of the thing, you know, Fifth Element, something like that, uh, it's, it, it would be kind of unnecessary. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. John, what about you? Uh, well, I'm, Chris said so many interesting things there. First of all, the current audience for Elite is quite mature. Yeah. And, you know, I would like, for selfish reasons, I'd like to see that engaged in both the fiction and the game. It would be very nice to see a mature game, not not just necessarily in terms of language, but in terms of content. And, and, and I don't mean that it has to be extremely profane and offensive and, and basically mean that young people can't you know play the game i mean for, for a start i think the cur- whatever the current understanding of censorship of games is i think it's 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 completely bizarre i mean young people these days are very cl- clued up they know all the swear words and i don't think a 13 year old is going to hear anything in a game that they haven't already heard in school anyway I'd like to see some profanity, not too much. There's nothing worse than watching a film where people just seem to be swearing for the sake of it. Um, yeah. Well, from my point of view, I absolutely agree that the, the demographic for Elite currently is is very mature. And from a selfish point of view, yes, it would be quite nice to have a mature game. However, from a business point of view, we want this game to be a success. So obviously Frontier Development have to make it for as large an audience as they can possibly get. It's an interesting debate, actually, that we've we've had over there, and and Dave has obviously has uh, has brought this to you guys, um, and Dave's obviously is aware of uh, of some of the debate that's going on in the writers' forum about it. You've you've got a few sort of takes on this. One, the idea of of inventing new words. The most common and oldest four-letter expletive that we make use of in the English language has a root from 1475. If you think about that, that's you know sort of 600 years. I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility to say that it continues uh, in perpetuity through to 3300. I don't think there's a there's an issue there if um, you know if, if people elected to to have that as part of the parlance. And you've got to think that you know much as we're trying to create something here, you have to also think of what the experience of your readership has. So they have to have a relationship with the uh, the you know the terms that you elect to use. Similarly, you've got some uh, pieces of media and fiction that have made incredibly good use of inventing their own terminology. So we've talked about Battlestar Galactica already. Firefly makes use of Chinese. Yeah. And it works, you know, but it actually doesn't work so much in that people who are listening to Firefly or watching Firefly don't really know what they're saying. You know, they just get the idea of the inflection. And the fact that people don't understand what they're saying kind of makes it better because the emotion is conveyed rather than the word itself so that kind of works then on the flip side of that if you ever read any isaac asimov isaac asimov hated swearing in all his books so if you read any of um, the robot series uh, with elijah bailey and uh, and daniel and giscard which are uh, the caves of steel the naked sun robots of the dawn uh, robots on earth i think is the fourth one in there he invented a swear word for his main character and his main character would say jehoshaphat and it was rubbish. <laughs> so basically you went through this and it took it took a while for you to go through the chapters of this book to gradually get into the idea that this was the expletive of this particular character. 
And every time, really, you know, I mean, I read the book, you know, I've read the book many times, but every time he said it, I kind of went, really? You know, and it didn't work. So you've got to, you know, the way in which you get this balance across and, and let's face it, you know, I'm, I'm criticizing here and I, you know, I'm, I'm very aware I'm setting myself up to be punched. I'm criticizing here one of the major science fiction writers of the 20th century. You know, Asimov is an absolute icon and his work is incredible, but that didn't work. So if you're going to create something that has, you know, sort of modern sort of parlance to it and also is understood. You know, so it's understood by a modern reader, but has that, that element of futuristic sort of quality to it. You've got to work on it quite carefully. And it's it's quite difficult to then sort of structure that across lots of different writers and lots of different documents. So it's likely you're going to see, you know, a certain element of modern parlance. And it's likely you're then going to see a certain element of, of constructed, you know, sort of swearing that doesn't feel out of place. And I think Chris has already given some examples there of things that, that aren't out of place. We've also already got some canon information, too, because you've got Robert Holstock, who gave us the expression iron ass, which is, you know, getting a really tooled up ship. Now, of course, you've then got the flip of that is, well, what's the opposite of an iron ass? It's probably going to be a glass ass or something that you know like that, or a china ass, or a you know a, a porcelain ass, or something you know. So you you can sort of play around with ideas there. But similarly, it's not ass, it's ass. You know, there, there's a sort of there's an inflection infusion there. Now there's one more thing that sort of comes into this, and this is something that Dave proposed in the forum, and we we kind of Drew and I kind of looked at this and went. <sighs> don't like that there is a way in which you can disguise swearing by effectively saying he cursed she cursed <laughs> and uh he muttered under his breath and you know and all the rest of this and you know you can kind of get away with that a little bit but if you do that for the whole of your text you're effectively you're telling and you're not showing and it doesn't have the same kind of dramatic impact as a person standing in your face and screaming at you with the the relevant expletives or the relevant insult that they're you know that they're going to put at you you know in terms of what's there so it's a really difficult balance um so yeah i mean it'd be an interesting ongoing discussion and i think you know when you look at previous fiction as well uh the frontier um sort of stories that came out were were quite sort of you know middle of the road and i think they'd, they'd easily fit a pg-13 the stuff that was put together with first encounters has a bit more of an adult edge to it. You know, I think that there is quite an interesting sort of different sort of structure and different idea behind some of the, you know, the way in which that fiction sets together. Of course, do remember as well that the game might be PG-13. Does that any reason why all the books have to be? Okay, so the next question we've got is from Exaga. Will the Federation Navy still be based at Itacassia Pier? Okay, I guess I guess that's one for me then, isn't it really? Well, I don't think the rest of us are going to know, Al. Okay, um, most of the information that the Federation Navy being based there is set up from the Frontier Gazetteer. What I can say is that the biggest document that we have based all the current information from and that we have used as our source material is the Frontier Gazetteer. Some information has changed, but not a great deal. And we try very hard... And, you know, and I, I myself have, have also been in a situation where I've been told, no, you can't change things from the Frontier Gazetteer. We tried very hard not to change information from that document because it's a really good document. So there are mentioned in the Frontier Gazetteer, there is Ita Cassiopeia as a, um, as a federal star base. 
There is also mention of Arnlave as being one of the the older trading uh, uh, training areas for the Federation Navy. Now, we've expanded the history to indicate why and how some of the, uh, the training academies have moved and changed across those two star systems. We've also looked at the different elements of the Federation military, not just the Navy, the other elements of where they would be based and how they would work. So what I can say is that the writers need to have consistent information that they base their material on. The current drafts and everything else, there are you know, very clear information from the Frontier Gazetteer has been placed in there so that the writers have something that they can work off and that they can move forward um, in terms of what's there. But the campaign situation's altered slightly. You know, the Federation and the Empire and the Alliance have obviously a different sort of jockeying of where the navies are in the last 50 years. So if the navy positions and the military situation has moved, then it's likely the naval bases may well do as well. So sorry for not giving you a definitive answer, but I can tell you it will be a consistent answer. And certainly, if there is any movement, it will be very clearly explained. Right. And you don't happen to fancy a shift in career into being a politician by any chance, Alan? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm I'm fine, you know. Um, That was a fantastic answer to what was a yes or no question. He'd be a rubbish politician because he didn't manage to blame any of it on the immigrants. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, it's all those guys from DSO. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this one coming in from Psycho Cow. Uh, what effect will zero gravity have on clothing and fashion? Now, I think this could come in because Psycho Cow is a big advocate for the elite dangerous onesie that he's trying to get developed. But uh, <laughs> given the information we've already got, we know that the, um, the Federation is going to be quite a utilitarian fashion. What about the Empire? What about the Independence? Well, I, I, I think that whereas the Federation will want the utilitarian onesie with the door at the back and the escape hatch at the front, um, I, I think the Empire, you know, it's going to be fashion over function. They're going to go to extreme lengths to make sure it looks good and they don't want the escape hatches to be obvious. I mean, there is some indication that Imperial clothes are more outlandish than, uh, you know, that there are more extremes of fashion in imperial society. There is some indication of that because we've had that in previous games. You know, the ideas of that has been in in some of the previous uh, sort of publications. But um, I'm not sure, really. I mean, you know, it'll it'll depend on what... uh, I mean, there is a... You know, what I can say is there is a clear idea to try and make the different societies very different. And I think that's, you know, I think that's cool. Excellent. Okay, well, that's going to do us for listener questions this week. Before we leave this section, let's hear from Commander Bingo Brewster and his elite memories. Greetings, space chums. Commander Bingo Brewster here. Current sit rep, Galaxy 7, rotting in a Thargoid dungeon. Well, I have a few moments until they bring the boar worms, so I thought I'd use that time to share some of my earliest memories of elite with you. Has it been over a thousand years already? My God, how time flies in this robot body. The year is 1984. Slide rules are on the way out and microcomputers are well on the way in. I was a youngish soldier stationed in Germany and therefore having no money but plenty of time and not wanting to get left behind, I decided I'd better teach myself something about these newfangled doodads. I spent many a satisfying hour teaching myself the basics of programming using BBC Basic and even coding some games and what the kids these days would call apps. 
So I got a glimpse into the world of programming and some of the difficulties and complexities thereof. I can't remember exactly how I came across Elite, but I do remember how gobsmacked I was that this incredible game could run with such a small amount of memory. And so my leisure hours that when older I would waste whoring, gambling and drinking were spent happily tabbing up and down the various galaxies, trading mainly, but also indulging in a fair bit of bounty hunting and piracy something that I hope to repeat as soon as the alpha testing starts. Well, it looks like it's nearly boreworm time, so I'd better start planning my escape. Something along the lines of, with a single bound he was free, I fancy. Anyway, this is Commander Bingo Brewster signing off. Hope to see you all in space very soon. Final section of the podcast, the feedback and shout-out section. First of all, we'll start off with the iTunes review. A uh, big thanks to the guys who have taken the time to actually put a review up on iTunes. That's Canary Jam, Grown Up Fanboy, and Wise Old Man. Okay, and on the forums, big shout out to Mobius. Some of the great work he's been doing on the signatures and bespoke Elite Dangerous artwork. In particular, I know he's uh, impressed Fozza with his wonderful image of an orange sidewinder. Although, unfortunately, and uh, pff, this isn't a criticism, there's no ASBO lettering on the side yet. But, you know, it's a work in progress, I understand. And we've also got to let everybody know about the new audio drama being produced by our very own Chris Jarvis. Escape Velocity is our new title for it. Uh, Chris has been working really hard on getting his actors recorded uh, so that they feature uh, as as the parts within the show. And uh, hopefully we may have a little teaser for you right at the end. Uh, And a huge thank you as well this week to Drew, who has uh, interviewed Alan as the next in our series of writers interviews. A particular thanks, because despite the fact that there's actually three of us co-presenters here, nobody wanted to interview Alan. So (laughs) great work, Drew, for stepping up. Oh, it's funny because it's true. And finally, just to highlight Chris Avery's work. Uh, It's a great short film entitled The Return of the Cobra. That was completed for the end of the Kickstarter. You can go and see that at tinyurl.com forward slash all lowercase C-N-M-F-R-R-P. And that's going to do it for this week, guys. If you've got any feedback, let us know at info at layradio.com, at at layradio on Twitter, and search for us on Facebook. Okay, so we're going to power down the Sidewinder and see you next episode. Coming this week from Lave Radio. Amid the stars in the sky. Welcome to Schneider Orbiter. How may I serve you today, sir? Humanity expands and thrives as it pushes back the boundaries of the universe. I came through a bit of a rough system to get here. Can you describe the vehicles which attacked you? They had missiles. If you can't pay, your ship will be impounded until you do. I need a ship. What do you need a ship for? I thought your ad said no questions. Shouldn't you be in school, kid? My name is May. The runaway, huh? Commander Thane, please, I just want someone to take me home. We need your services, Mr. Thane. Or do you prefer a commander? Where is the prototype? These robots are special. If you miraculously find them. We need you to take a shipment into Imperial space for us. Get me the ship's details, and I'll make sure the prototype is intercepted. Everybody seems to want something. Sure I want something. I want to earn enough credits for an expensive mining We can't let the weapon leave the station. I want a quiet system with nobody else around where I can work in peace. Then do nothing. Just get me the registration of that ship. 
I just came to check on my investment. I haven't forgotten. I haven't forgotten. If anything untoward were to happen to any of the shipment, it would be bad news for you. I'm going to die. No, no, I won't accept that. Hey, who are these guys? Any system other than this. I've got to get out of here. We'll work something out. From the luxury of the core systems to the harsh worlds of the frontier, men still fight. Orbital traffic control requesting takeoff clearance. They all share one aim to be elite. Engaging hyperdrive. Escape velocity. A new Elite Dangerous audio adventure serial. Coming this week. Massive thank you to Canary Jam, grown up fanboy, and wise old man for leaving us retunes. Okay, and on the forums, big shout out to Mobius and some of the great work he's been doing on Foreman. Oh, fucking hell. I'll, don't worry, no, no, that was just a slip of the tongue. Um, big shout out on the forums to Mobius, uh, possibly the greatest artist. Um, hang on, sorry, that was. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me try that again. It's the real children's TV show in uh... <laughs> Okay, are we ready? Right, you, you might need to mute yourself, Fozzer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you might all need to mute yourself for this. That's every time I hear Chris, because it's funny. <laughs> okay, so uh, big shout out to Mobius on the forums, who's done some great work. Uh, cre- <laughs> <laughs> that was probably Peter. <laughs> I will get, I will get, I will get through this, and this is going to be... Proper Tony Tiger. That was absolutely proper Tony Tiger. Great! (laughs) Right, fine, okay. I'm professional, I can do this. It's okay, John, I'm with you. Okay. Big shout out to Mobius, some of the great work he's been doing on the signatures and bespoke Elite Dangerous artwork, in particular... I know he's uh, impressed Fozzer with his wonderful image of an orange sidewinder. Although, unfortunately, and this isn't a criticism, there's no ASBO lettering on the side yet. But, you know, it's a work in progress, I understand. Well done. Well done, John. (laughs) John. 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 Yeah, the... the, the... Well done, John. No, no. Don't, Don't do that. John well done and we've also got to give a um, I'll start that again are we explaining why the title's changed because it was a NAF title now it's a good one yeah well, there's part of that okay is there a reason why the title's changed it's not about the frontier yeah Unless well then it's the not bother let's <laughs> not bother okay. right. it's got nothing to do with the fact that everybody on the forums kept on giving you a hard time about it mate nothing at all to do with that well, not really I mean it wasn't a good title I think you know <laughs> pe- people spotted that as well as I did 
Uh, it was it was always a t- you know it was just a working, working title. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. John. And it was always John. a subtitle. That was the thing. <laughs> John. Yeah. Great work. <laughs> <laughs> um, John. Yeah. Great work. <laughs> oh dear and finally just to hang on whoa 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 this is, is this not bordering on bullying now <laughs> hey I'm staying well out of this mate every time I bully you I get an extra four pages worth of math that I can appear on my <laughs> I'm protected I got contacts you're both asses. but for now we're going to power down the sidewinder and we're going to see you next week no we're not we're going to power down the Sidewinder and see you later. No, we're not. We're going to power down the Sidewinder <laughs> and see you next episode. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I ruined that. Okay, sorry, just, just do that again. Sorry. Okay, oh, so, yeah. Oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to power down the Sidewinder and see you next episode. That sounds worse than what you said before. Just next <laughs> week. It sounds like somebody sniggered right at the end and it basically sounds like you got up and farted. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to power down the Sidewinder and see you next episode. Well you don't done. actually see them though, do you? Let's not pick at that for it. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, go on. Yeah. <laughs> Good work, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>